The story of Noah and of Noah's flood is a traditional passage to start the season of Lent with. It's an appropriate passage. I hope you'll see by the end of talking about it. And I'm going to be speaking to you about Noah, this Noah story today. I'll be directing you to that story, so you might go to pages 6 and 7 in your pew Bible. Whenever the subject of Noah and the flood comes up, uh, there's often some responses. Well, you know, someone might say. Well, you know, I saw a YouTube, and it had a geologist on it with a PhD from an Ivy League, and he was at the Grand Canyon, and he, he said there's no way that the Grand Canyon could have been formed by some kind of global flood. Well, you know, I saw a YouTube by a guy who was a hydraulic engineer, and he had a PhD from an Ivy League school, and he said that we find oil in the world exactly where and how we would expect to find it if, in fact, there had been a global flood like Noah described. Well, you know, when the Bible says all of the world, it means all the world that the people at the time knew about. And so it's entirely possible that this flood was a local flood and, and not a global flood. Well, you know, the story of a worldwide flood that wipes out humanity except for a small group of people is a common myth among those of the Eastern Mediterranean world. Well, you know the kind of discussion that comes about. But I'm afraid that discussion while it's important and worth having, distracts us from the point of the story. God didn't give us the book of Genesis that we would have a way to prove that the Bible is right or to test it to see if it's wrong. God gave us the book of Genesis to teach us the gospel. And a discussion about how we deal with the flood story is important and worth having, but like I said, I'm afraid that the discussion is a way to keep us from paying attention to the point of the story. And the point of the story is this. The wickedness of man is great in the earth, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. God's judgment is coming, and you better get in the boat. <laughs> if you want to know if, if, the, if the Noah flood story really happened, well, in a sense, it's really happening right now, because right now the wickedness of man is great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. God's judgment is coming, and we better make sure that we're in the boat. Now, it's true. It certainly is true that, um, especially in the eastern Mediterranean world, but we find it elsewhere as well, we have stories of great floods that wipe out people except for a handful of people. And they're especially popular in the eastern Mediterranean world. I've always been struck by, by how odd that objection is. Lots of people talked about it, so we can't take it seriously. It seems like if lots of people talked about it, there's something that we should be taking seriously. Seems like that to me, anyway. But when we compare this to other stories, we do find remarkable similarities. We certainly do, but we also find remarkable differences. And I'm struck today more by those differences than by the similarities. In this story, for example, God promises that he'll never destroy humanity again. He'll never wipe out human flesh from the face of the earth again. There is a Greek story about a man and his wife. Doaklion is the man and Pyrrha is his wife. They build a great big wooden box. They hear a flood's coming. They build a great big wooden box, take two of all the kinds of animals they can find on board, and uh, sure enough, the floodwaters come, and Doaklion and his wife go off, and uh, they are saved, and, and they repopulate the earth. But in that cycle of Greek stories, human beings are wiped out two more times, completely wiped out. 
One of those times, we're not even told why or how. It's just Zeus just got tired of people, so he wiped them out, and then he got bored, and so he started up it up again. And we're told in that cycle of story, there's one more time coming in which the gods are going to get angry and wipe out human beings again. Almost universally in these stories, the people have made the gods angry. The typical story is one told by the Sumerians just to the east of where the Hebrew people lived. In this story, the gods lived up on top of the mountains, and the people lived down in the valley. But one night, the people decide to have a big party. And so they're playing music and dancing and singing and whooping and hollering and having a good time down there. And the gods who are trying to go to sleep on top of the mountains can't get to sleep because the people down the valley are making too much noise. I used to live in that apartment complex, so I identify with the gods here. <laughs> All night long, the gods toss and turn on their spirit beds, cussing out the people down in the valley, until finally one of the gods hollers and says, hey, you, the god who can make it rain anytime she wants to, make it rain and flood out the valley and kill all those people so we can get a good night's sleep. And the god who can make it rain anytime she wants to says, that's a good idea, and she makes it rain, floods out the valley, in fact, floods out the whole earth, and all the people are killed so that the gods can get a good night's sleep. What I find remarkable about the story is that in the entire passage of the Noah story, from Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9, nowhere are we told that God is angry. We aren't told that God is angry. We're told that God is sad. He's grieved and he regrets ever even making humanity. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I suppose if you're contemplating a massive flood that killed a whole lot of people, and you ascribe that to the gods or to God, then anger would be a main motive because that's how humans would feel. Humans would feel angry. And ascribing anger to the gods seems just natural. But that's how people would respond. That's not how God responds. God is sorry. God's heart is broken, and he grieves what people have done. He created the world. He called it good, but people have messed up. But God, in his grace, gives a second chance. And in a sense, he recreates the world. I think that's what we're to take from the Noah story, that this is an act of, in some way of recreation. Genesis chapter 9, the passage I read was from later in, the, in, the, in that chapter, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Does that ring a bell? That's from the Genesis account of, of creation. And then in verse 6 of chapter 9, God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That should ring a bell too. That's from the Christian story in Genesis 1. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. He created them. I think in the story we're supposed to be reminded of the creation and to see this event as an act of recreating things. And in the face of sinfulness and evil, God gives a second chance, a new beginning. God makes a covenant. That Hebrew word covenant uh, means what in English today we call a contract. It's an economic word. It's a financial word. It means a contract. God makes a business deal 
with Noah and with the animals and with the whole world. God makes a covenant. He makes a contract. That contract is the part that I read to you from Genesis chapter 9. Right now there's a lot of excitement because we're in the middle of working out a contract to buy the big building over there. Canaan land. (laughs) Milk and honey. Right over there. And so both sides in the business deal have lawyers who are going over the contract and making sure everything is just right and phrased just right and everything works out to be equitable. But when God makes this contract, apparently he didn't have a good lawyer because it's a bum contract from God's end of the deal. He doesn't get anything in return. He just simply makes a whole bunch of promises and asks nothing in return. He establishes a relationship in this contract between humans and the natural world, between humans and each other, and between humans and God. Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, where I read to you this morning. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, my contract with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. God establishes a covenant, a contract with the natural world, with birds and animals and livestock and every beast of the earth. And that gives believers a reason to care for the earth, to be concerned about animals, to care about the natural world, to take an interest in the ecology of the world, to worry and be concerned about environmental issues. We have a reason to care for the earth. In Eastern religions, for example, the natural world is an illusion. It's something to be overcome through consciousness. Western humanism, the main ideology which drives our culture today, looks at environmental issues for selfish reasons. You've heard this before. We must take care of the environment or else we'll be polluted. We must care for it because it does us good. But Christianity teaches that the natural world is worthy of respect on its own terms. It was created by God, and when God created it, he called it good but we messed it up. Something went wrong. Human behavior went wrong. We fell into sin, and the whole system doesn't work the way it was designed to work. In ancient Hebrew thought, it's like the entire universe is like one thing. It's like one system. It's like one organism, kind of like. You want to say it's like a machine, but then you get into all kinds of trouble, so don't worry about that too much, but it's something like that at least. It's all one system. And when the whole system was created, God called it good. But then something went wrong. Human behavior went wrong. And the whole system doesn't work the way it was designed to work. And that's why we have pain and death and illness and diseases and horrible things that happen to us because that good system no longer works. And the entire universe suffers because people messed up. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 8. For I, Paul writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, to emptiness, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul tells us that all of creation awaits a restoration, a recreation, even a resurrection, if you will, because the creation itself, Paul says, waits for the redemption of our bodies, for the resurrection of our bodies. The natural world suffers because we messed up. And yet in its suffering, the natural world glorifies God. Just open up the Psalms almost anywhere and you see talking about the natural world glorifying God, singing praises to God. When you go outside and you walk across the dirt, the earthworm, six inches under your feet, glorifies God more than you do. Because the earthworm is doing what God created it to do, but you aren't. God created the earthworm to chew through the earth and aerate the soil, and the earthworm is doing it. God created you to glorify God and all you do to reflect something about God into the world. That's what the whole idea of the image of God is, and yet we're fallen and we don't do it. The earthworm glorifies God more than we do. Even in their suffering, the animals, the beasts of the field, the livestock, all of the natural world glorifies God. And God makes a covenant with the natural world. The second thing this covenant does is establish a relationship with other people. God tells us here that human life is sacred. Why is human life sacred? Because God created men and women in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. The idea there is that there's something about, like, about human beings which is like God. And human beings are supposed to reflect God into the world. But we fell, and yet God says human life is still sacred and important. In verse 5 of chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And I've heard this, this verse used to justify capital punishment. And I've heard this verse used to argue against capital punishment. And I've used this verse, heard this verse used to argue for just war theory. And I've heard this verse used to argue for pacifism. This verse has nothing to do with the government. This verse is about God. It has nothing to do with governmental policies towards murder or just war or anything. This is about God. All too often we make Caesar our God. We give to Caesar what is God's. But that's another sermon. I'll preach that sometime when I want to make everybody mad because everybody's going to be mad about that because that's what we do. We make the government God. Cast all our cares on the government for the government cares for you. Well, that's another sermon. I'll hold off on that. But this is not about the government. This is about God. And God says, I will hold you accountable for taking human life. Even the animals. Did you catch that from every beast? I will require it. Because any assault on a human being, God says, is an assault on me. Any indignity to a human being is an indignity to me. Even animals. Now, don't ask. But even the animals. Even animals will be held accountable for taking a human life. Now, how does that work? I told you, don't ask. I have no idea how that works. But that's what God says. I'll even hold animals accountable 
because any assault on a human being is an account as an assault on me. Law professor Alan Dershowitz, he's a lawyer at, uh, at Harvard Law School. I, I like his writings. I don't always agree with them, but I like Alan Dershowitz's writings because he lays things out very clearly and, and simply, and by the time you finish reading something, you understand exactly what he wants to say. Whether you agree with him or not, you, you understand. Um, I just like to read his stuff. He's got a, a famous essay on where human rights come from. Where do human rights come from? And he gives four options. The first option, he says, is the tra traditional view of the Western jurisprudence, jurisprudential tradition that human rights come from God, that God created human beings in his image, and because they bear the image of God, then human beings have rights. But, Dershowitz says, now we know that God doesn't exist, so that one's wrong. Maybe, he says, going on to the second option, he says, uh, maybe somehow human rights have evolved. And he examines that, and he says, but no, that doesn't make any sense either. And he goes through the other two options. At the end of the essay, he says, really, I guess we just don't know where human rights come from, but the world is a better place when we pretend that people have human rights. That makes the world a better place, and so we'd all be happier if we just played along and pretended that everybody has human rights. Well, as Christians, we want to back up to that first option and say, well, maybe um, we can re-explore that. Maybe we do have a reason to believe that human rights, human rights apply to every individual human being because every human being is a reflection of God and every be human being deserves honor and respect and dignity. Have you heard of John Calvin? Mean-spirited old John Calvin. Hateful, bitter old man. That's the cartoon of John Calvin you've been introduced to. I'd like you to read this, you this passage from Calvin's writings, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, on this idea of the image of God. The Lord, I'm reading from Calvin now. The Lord commands all men without exception to do good. Yet the great part of men are most unworthy if they be judged by their own merit. But here scripture helps us in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider what men merit of themselves but to look upon the image of God within all men to which we owe all honor and love. Therefore, whatever man you meet who needs your assistance, you have no reason to refuse to help him. You may say, but he is a stranger. But the Lord has given him a mark that ought to be familiar to you. You may say he is contemptible and worthless, but the Lord shows him to be one to whom he has deigned to give the beauty of his image. Say that you owe nothing for any service of his, but God, as it were, has put him in his own place in order that you may recognize toward him the many and great benefits with which God has bound you to himself. Say that he does not deserve even your least effort for his sake, but the image of God which recommends him to you is worthy of your giving him yourself and all your possessions. Now, if he has not only deserved no good at your hand, but has also provoked you by unjust acts and curses. Not even this is just reason why you should cease to embrace him in love and to perform the duties of love on his behalf. You will say he has deserved something worse from me. Yet what has the Lord deserved? While he bids you forgive this man for all sins he has committed against you, he would truly have them charged against himself. Assuredly, there is but one way in which to achieve what is not merely difficult, but utterly against human nature, to love those who hate us, 
to repay their evil deeds with benefits, to return blessings for reproaches. It is that we remember not to consider men's evil intentions, but to look upon the image of God in them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions to us, and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. And so this covenant reminds us that we have an obligation to treat others with dignity and respect, just as we would treat the Lord whose image they bear. The third thing this covenant does is establish a relationship with God. God says, I'm going to put my bow in the clouds. And when I see it, I'll remember that I'm at peace with humanity. The rainbow. Because we call it a rainbow, and the rainbow is pretty and looks kind of like a ribbon across the sky, when we read bow here, we think about a bow like you take ribbons and tie them and make a nice little pretty bow to put up in the sky. But the Hebrew word here is the war bow, the bow and arrow, the weapon. He says, I'm laying my weapon up in the cloud, so when I see it, I know that I'm at peace with human beings. I read a couple of weeks ago, a story, and I wish I remember where I read it, so I'd give you the name of the author. But he, he was writing about a time when he was in seminary and he was, was ministering to inner city children. He was working with children who lived in, in tough circumstances in the city. And he was telling them the story of Noah, and he got to this part of the story, and he says, do you know what a rainbow is? And the kids said, yes. And, they said, and he said, where do you see the rainbow? And the kids said, in the street. And he said, no, where do you see the rainbow? And they laughed and said, in the street. And he said, oh, you mean you go out in the street and you look up in the sky and you see the rainbow between the buildings? And they said, <laughs> and he said, I, I don't understand what you mean. And they said, we'll show you. And they took him out in the street and they showed him a mud puddle where the oil from the street had collected on the mud puddle. And they said, there it is, there's the rainbow. And he wanted to tell them, no, the rainbow is a pretty, but he said, that's right. And when you come out and you look in the mud puddle and you see the oil slick, remember, God's at peace with you. That's where your rainbow is. When you see it, remember. That rainbow is a reminder that God is at peace with humanity, even though God knows that humans will continue to sin. Even in this passage, he says, I know you're going to murder each other. But God says, he'll make a way to solve the problem. That weapon is going to be hung up, and there's going to be another way to solve the problem. And as we continue reading Scripture, we see God's plan unfold. Peter reminds us in the epistle reading for today that God's already taken care of the root of the problem, human sin. He's taken our flesh and died for us, even though we didn't deserve it. And I would come up with a nice conclusion here, but what I ask you to do is listen to the rest of the service. Listen for the notes of God's grace over and over again through the creed, through the comfortable words at the end of the confession, through the exhortation, through the communion service. Open your ears and hear the notes of God's grace that you're going to be hearing over and over again for the rest of the day. Let's always keep our eyes open for the rainbow, even if it's in the mud puddle, and keep our ears open for the notes of God's grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.